0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, verses nine through 13. I will read verse nine, and then I will lead us out together. We will read together, starting with our Father. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. I already mentioned this. Uh, Growing up, we said the Lord's Prayer every week at the church I went to. And the cadence with which we said the prayer has really stuck with me. And if you've said the prayer in unison like we did, I even heard it actually, there is a certain cadence. And when that cadence is spoken and prayed over and over and over, it begins to shape the way we view the prayer itself and it begins to outline it, so to speak, in our minds and imprints on our hearts, the way we think about it. When you read about the Lord's Prayer or when you look at it grammatically, it's easy to see, especially after it's pointed out, that the opening phrase, our Father in heaven, is just that. It's an opening phrase followed by six petitions or six things that we ask for. And those six petitions are really broken up into three and three. So the first three are about God's kingdom coming, about his name being set apart, or hallowed, which is what we're going to speak to today, the first petition. And then it, uh, we also pray a petition about God bringing his kingdom here on earth and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then the bottom three petitions that we'll get to in weeks to come are about God providing for us and our physical needs, this daily bread idea. Also the fact that we need God to provide reconciliation, forgiveness of our sins, and we need to therefore move horizontally and forgive one another. That would be the sixth petition. And then the seventh petition is wrapped up with the fact that we all struggle with sin. There's still a battle of sin and we need God to lead us not into temptation and to deliver us from evil. So those are the six petitions. Petitions. Now, the way those have been imprinted on my mind from the cadence that I'm used to is this. I would pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Pause. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But really, as I continue to study it, I realize that the cadence grammatically should go something like this Our Father in heaven, pause. Hallowed be your name your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can you feel the difference? The difference is that "Hallowed be your name is not just something you ascribe to your father in heaven, but it's actually a petition. It's actually something we're asking God to do. Now, maybe even in the other cadence, that was clear to you, but to me, it wasn't. It wasn't clear that this was the first of six petitions. And something else I've learned is that not only is it just one of six petitions, I think you could also break it down into one and five. And this is why. This petition, this thing that we're asking God, hallowed be your name. We're saying, let your name be hallowed. It shapes the entire conversation. It shapes the rest of the prayer. Because you see, What is the end to which we would ask God to bring his kingdom? We would ask God to bring his kingdom so his name would be great. Why else would we ask God to give us daily bread? So we can spend our lives on ourselves? No, so that whatever he would call us to do, wherever he would take us, his name would be made great in that place. Why else would we ask for forgiveness and pursue reconciliation? It's so that God's name would be made great. Why else would we want to fight sin and ask that God would not lead us into temptation, but would deliver us from evil? It's mainly so that God's name could be shown to be great. So you see, this is the first of the petitions for a reason, because it sets us on a trajectory. But besides the cadence of the prayer, another thing that's always thrown me off with this first petition, Hallowed be your name, is what in the world does that mean? I mean, when's the last time you used the the word hallowed? It's an old English phrase, hallowed be thy name. And I think we still translate it this way just because it's such a known prayer. It's tradition. And I think it's rich and it's good, but not if we don't understand it. And so as I was thinking about how can we get at hallowed be thy name, I, I came across the Heidelberg Catechism's question and answer. And so the question will be on the screen and the answer will be on the screen. I'm looking, okay, 122. In case you wanna look this up later, you can write this down. This is the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 122. What does the first petition mean? This is the answer. I think it's a good one, which is why we're reading it. "How would be your name means, help us to truly know you, to honor, glorify, and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them. What shines forth from God's works? Well, his almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth. And it means help us to direct all of our living. That is what we think, what we say, and do. And I would add what we love and want. So that God's name, your name, will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. So name is synonymous in the Bible with God's presence, with his person. So in our culture, name, a lot of times simply is just something that distinguishes you from me and that's it. But biblically speaking and in other cultures, a name is the person themselves. It cannot be divorced from their character. It cannot be divorced from their attributes. It cannot be divorced from what they do. In the world. And so to hallow God's name means to make Him holy in our lives. It means to revere Him, to magnify Him, to make Him great, to honor Him, to ascribe worth to Him, to set Him apart. And then when that happens, Our lives line up behind that reality. When God is set apart in our hearts, everything else lines up to that end. We just sort of get in line behind that because that's what we do. When we surrender to something that we give ultimate worth to, everything in our life falls in place. Everything falls in place. When we ascribe or set God apart in our hearts as the most worthy thing in our lives, it's like the sun In our solar system. Okay, think about the sun in this solar system. All of the planets orbit around it. Why? Because it's huge. Because its mass is unbelievable compared to the other planets in our solar system. Because it's at the center, its gravity puts everything else in place. If our sun was to be moved at all, chaos would ensue right? Our moon may fly into Mars and we may be swallowed up by Jupiter. I don't know what would happen, but it would not be good. That's why it's at the center. And that's why it is massive. And when the sun is at the center of the solar system, everything orbits around it. It doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't diminish. It just goes to its proper place. And when we have God set apart in our hearts as the most worthy thing in our universe, because in fact, He is the most worthy thing. Everything else goes in its proper place. When God is at the center, everything else does not diminish or disappear. It just goes to the proper place. And so what Jesus is doing by starting here is by saying the only way we can realistically, the only way we can properly pray any of the petitions that follow is first, we would ask God to make his name great in our heart, that he would be the sun in our solar system, so to speak. Now, when you talk about this language, this is worship language in the Bible. We, whatever is set apart as the most worthy thing in our life, that is the thing we worship. And so since we're talking about prayer, I want to answer one question this morning related to this idea, this prayer, this petition that God would make his name great in our hearts, that he would set himself apart. And this is the question I want to answer. How does worship function in prayer? Right? Because I said this is worship language. Let your name be set apart in our heart so that our lives would go into its proper place, that you would become the sun. And I want to talk about two answers to that. Two answers to the question of how does worship function in prayer? The first answer is this. In prayer, worship is formative. It shapes the conversation. Last week we said prayer is a two-way conversation and it is. When we enter into this conversation, we respond to God speaking to us. And worship shapes the conversation of prayer in this case, by drawing our minds and hearts to the bigness of God. You see, any rich and deep and meaningful conversation we ever have, we speak to what is truly on our hearts, don't we? It's not surface level, it's not niceties, it's speaking to what is deep and rich and current in our minds and hearts. That is a deep, real conversation. And why would prayer be anything different than a deep, meaningful, real conversation? And so Jesus, by starting off giving us this petition, is drawing our minds to the bigness and greatness of God. By telling us to start here, we are setting our minds on God. Now listen, I said setting our minds and hearts on God, not a glance, okay? So it's not like what we really want to get to is the petition of, God, use me in your mission. Your kingdom is coming. And of course, yes, I need food for that. And I need reconciliation with you so I can join you. Oh yeah, but at the, at the first, we just need a glance at, yeah, you're, you're great and hollow your name, but I wanna get to this because that's normally how we attack our prayers and our problems, that we go right after them. But Jesus doesn't say, just glance. He is squaring our shoulders so that our entire body and mind and heart is facing this reality. We are squaring our shoulders at the very beginning and saying, God, set yourself apart in my life. How does this happen? I mean, how do we functionally do this, right? Because how would be your name or God set your name apart? Do we just repeat that every week? Well, yeah, that's a good place to start. But guess what? We also have a lot of other examples of what this might look like. In the Psalms, for example, even Psalm 111, the Psalm that we read for our call to worship is filled with praising God for his works. It's filled with things that if we would square our shoulders to them and think about them and meditate on them, our hearts might actually begin to open up and our conversation surely would be shaped by all the things that Psalm 111 speaks to. A couple weeks ago, I think maybe a month ago now, I preached on Psalm 63. And one of the things I said was that I realized in preparing for that sermon, and really even before then, but it really came home to land in preparing for that sermon, is that I had no idea how to praise. And because of that, the Psalms were never really that rich to me. I mean, I knew that they should be, but it just wasn't my experience. So I prayed them and I sang them and I read them and I meditated on them. But really when I understood the function of praise, they began to open up. And to praise God among other things, is to list out all of the reasons why he is magnificent. It's to list out all the reasons he is praiseworthy. And then sooner, usually, or later sometimes, as we're doing that, we begin to compare or appraise God to other realities, right? When you appraise a painting or a house or a car, you're comparing its value to something else. So as you're listing out all of the things you're praising God for, you realize his greatness compared to everything else. And when we start there and we square our shoulders to that, it forms us, it forms our prayers. It sets our minds on something. It shapes the conversation. Now, without worship forming us, I think the conversation would end up looking a lot different, at least for me. So if I didn't have Jesus saying as a pattern, now I think it's good to stop right here and and let you know, no matter what I say now or for this series, I do not want to imply at all that God does not care about the most minute things in your life, that God as a father doesn't care about the bottom half of this prayer. Of course he does, but it's his grace that he would have us at the beginning. To look outside of ourselves and to square our shoulders to him so that everything else in our life would not disappear, but it would go into the right place. Remember, as he's the center. So I want to make that clear as I say this. Now, I think without Jesus as this pattern of prayer over time, calling me to square my shoulders to the bigness of God, praying that he would set himself apart in my heart and in the world we'll see next week. Without that, I think I would begin to turn inward on my own needs. I think I would begin to turn inward and my whole life and my heart would shrink down to my own problems. And then they would be so big that they would overwhelm me, whether it be my needs physically or emotionally or spiritually. Uh, There was a time uh, just two or three years ago where my life seemed overwhelming to me. And I spent a lot of time praying and asking God to answer specific prayers, which I'm thankful I did. And I'm thankful I have a father who wants to hear those things. And I felt loved in that. But oftentimes in my prayers, I would go there first. That's how I would attack my needs. I would go straight to God, you can do this. You can, you can provide for us. You can save me. You can breathe new life into my heart. Those are all great things that I was praying. But it began to feel stale and I didn't know why. And then one day as I was praying, I was meditating actually on a piece of scripture. I would tell you what it was. I can't remember what it was. And when I was doing that, it was as though that scripture crystallized in my heart and mind so powerfully that I knew what was happening. And this was the crystallization. It was, Damien, look up. Look to me, get outside of your problems. You realize that the point of everything is that you would make much of me. And of course I'm gonna provide for you. That's the point. You gotta be alive. You have to have a clothing and I have to provide for you so that you can make much of me. But just think about me. Think about me for a while. And it was amazing as I did that and Jesus sort of warmed my heart And it was as though the sun was back in my solar system and everything else didn't disappear. It didn't go away, but it started to go to its proper place and it it reshaped the conversation in my prayer. That functionally is what happens when we square our shoulders to the bigness of God and ask him to hallow his name in our heart and in our life. Now, I also realized something in that moment and that is, in the midst of our need, when we do feel overwhelmed, that's not the time for us to have our conversation shaped and formed. It actually happens before that. Now, even if you realize it in the moment, like I did, like, oh man, I haven't been following the pattern that Jesus gave me to first square my shoulders to the bigness of God. And my conversation has shrunk and it's all about me. I realize that To pray this pattern is really an indirect preparedness for whatever God would call me to. You see, indirectly, whatever problems I would face in the future, whatever problems you will face in the future, as you first, over time, not every prayer, but as a pattern in your prayer, first square your shoulders to the bigness of God, asking him to set himself apart in our heart that he would be the most worthy thing in our life. Your conversation will be shaped over time to when you do find yourself in those moments, your first reflex will be to go to the bigness of God and then move into your need in that order, which is why Jesus starts here. I I knew a friend and her brother uh, told me this story one time and I'm gonna tell it the best I can remember it and I hope I get it mostly right. It was the summer and he was a college minister and he also was learning about praise that summer and he was memorizing some of the Psalms and one of the Psalms he was memorizing was a portion of Psalm 73 and there's a, there's a part in there, Psalm 73, 26, it says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever and he had an allergic reaction one day and it was pretty severe. And he had never experienced anything like that before. So he wasn't prepared in any way. And an ambulance came and was rushing him to the hospital. And he couldn't really speak. And he was terrified. And as he retells the story afterwards, he says, The first thing that came to my heart as I thought, as I cried out to God, the first thing that came to my heart was Psalm 73, 26. And it is this, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He said, after that, I prayed, God save me. But my conversation was shaped by, to use the words we're using, the pattern of squaring first my shoulders to the bigness of God and everything else falling into place. It doesn't mean he didn't want to live. Of course he wanted to live. But the first place his conversation went was shaped by this pattern of first God being set apart in his heart as the most worthy thing in his universe, as the biggest thing in his universe. And just as a side note, in God's kindness, as he mouthed Psalm seventy three twenty six, not the words, but just the reference, the EMT who was with him could see what he was mouthing. And he said, brother, I'm a Christian too. And it was great comfort to him in God's kindness. But that story reminds me of what happens when over time, the pattern of our life daily, multiple times a day, in our prayers, we ask God that he would set himself apart in our hearts. And in that act of worshiping, meditating, it shapes our conversation when we come to him in prayer. Now that's the first part of my answer. My question was, What is the function of prayer in worship? And a good answer can be in prayer, worship is formative. It shapes the conversation as we square our shoulders to the bigness of God. But the second answer could be this. In prayer, worship is transformative. It reclaims our affections. You see, what happens when you realize God is not the center of your universe? When you realize right now, and maybe for a long time, your heart has been shrunk in on your own needs. To the exclusion of worshiping and praising God for who he is. Now listen, God is gracious and he's kind and he's patient. And he's not mad at you for doing that. And he wants to hear your needs. But Jesus, in this pattern, tells us how our conversation can be shaped to where God is the center of our life, of our heart, of our universe. So what does it look like to reclaim our affections and what are the affections anyway? In the New Testament, the word cardia, heart, it was translated as heart. It means something like bowels or gut. And in church history and all throughout, well, theology, church history, teaching, Bible teaching, people all the way back to St. Augustine have pointed out this reality that cardia or the gut or heart is sort of the center of gravity for a person. It's sort of like the seat of our desires, of our Longings. And so therefore, it's really, really important. And this is why, because it's your center of gravity. If I really want to know what you're about, like what you're really about. I'm not going to ask you what you know. And I'm probably not even going to ask you what you believe. If I really want to know what you're about, I'm going to say, what do you want? What do you desire? And the reason that's going to tell me so much about you is because human beings are lovers. Human beings are worshipers. We are designed to want and our cardia, that seat of our affections is aimed in a certain direction. And next week we'll see that the proper direction is the kingdom of God. That is God's will and reign. That's the proper direction. But if we're honest with ourselves, we want all types of things besides the kingdom of God. We desire all types of counterfeit kingdoms. And historically, Aristotle, for example, would say that thing that our affections are aimed at is what our vision of the good life is. What is your vision Of the good life. Is it the kingdom of God? You see, our actions in the world, and so therefore the words and our prayers are pulled by our desires. Our words, our prayers, our actions, the way we line up our lives, they're pulled towards our desires, not pushed by our beliefs. Do you see the difference? You and your action, your longings, you and your life are pulled by what your heart loves, where your affections are, what you ascribe worth to. That is to say, what you worship. Your life is pulled towards that more than you're pushed towards what you believe. And so in that way, that's why in Psalm 111, verse six, for example, says this, oh, I lost it. Here it is. 111 verse 6, the psalmist says, he has shown his people the power of his works. Not merely he has told, which he has, but he has shown, he has acted in the world. And that is because worship, our affections are planted in our heart. Our vision of the good life is planted in our heart. And when watered, it sprouts and it grows. And it's not just a list of beliefs. It's a picture. It's a story. It's a vision of the good life. That is what pulls you. Not a list of all the things that you know are right, But a picture, a vision, a desire that pulls you towards your vision of the good life. And that is why Jesus calls us first to square our shoulders, because not only does it shape the conversation, but when we square our shoulders, we feel the tension, right? As we're turning, because the first part of the pattern is to ascribe glory to God, and then we realize we've actually been ascribing glory and worth. And setting apart other things above God. And we'll feel the tension as we try to turn towards him. But in doing that. In recalling all of the works of God. And the story that we are a part of. Over and over. In the midst of community. Regularly. Daily that false vision of the good life begins to lose its traction because we actually see that it's empty in considering our current vision of the good life and appraising it or comparing it to the kingdom of God, which is full of justice, mercy, compassion, power, fullness, holiness, wholeness, Properness, light as opposed to darkness, majesty as opposed to sin. As we begin to see these things, we want those things because we're made for those things. And as we see that God just hasn't told us the list of what is good to be desired, He has displayed it and made it desirable. We've seen it in action, we've seen compassion over greed, we've seen light over darkness. We've seen majesty over counterfeit. We've seen it. And as we rehearse it through prayer and meditation, we realize it's not enough to understand the worthlessness of the world. We must value the worth of God. And where have we seen it most beautifully? Where have we seen the kingdom of God? The reign of God, the rule of God. Most impressively. It's in Jesus Christ. So you see, to square our shoulders to the goodness of God. To square our shoulders to the place that God deserves in our heart and life. Ultimately, the place where the power of sin will be broken. Is when we realize what God has done. The lengths to which he has gone. To free us from the counterfeit vision of the good life. Jesus is God. In the flesh. The one who is ultimately worthy. The one who deserves all praise. And all honor. And all glory. And it was that Jesus who came on the cross and was mocked, not honored, was spit on, not worshiped. So that in that moment, our desire and affections for false kingdoms could be broken and would be broken. And so where is our hope? How can this happen? And isn't it so comforting that it's a prayer? It is a prayer, not a statement, It's a prayer. God, please do this in my heart. Please do this in my life. And as we focus on God's saving in Jesus Christ, that is where our hope is. That is where our hope for transformation is. That is how our affections will be reclaimed. By reading, by meditating, by praying, by dwelling in the story of God. And we see that most clearly in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us this pattern. Lord, sometimes uh, the, I don't know, maybe more arrogant we get or the more foolish times we have, we believe somehow that we. Get the Christian life. And what's more basic than prayer? But yet we absolutely need you over and over to reshape our prayer life, to reclaim our affections. And we are so thankful that you've given us this pattern of which the first and trajectory setting petition is that you would become the center of our affections that as you would make your own place in our hearts and that you would be set apart, everything else in our life would not disappear, would not be lessened, but would go in its proper place. We ask now that as we go out this week, that we in our prayers would start with the realization that you are a father who is king because you're in heaven and that's where you live. That's where you dwell. And Jesus, you you left that dwelling place to come reclaim our affections, to form us, to shape us, to give us hope, to set us free. And as we pray this song of response, we ask that you would lift up our eyes to your largeness, to your glory, that you would square our shoulders to your reign and your presence and who you are. We're thankful. In Jesus' name.